0: How much have you considered your child's education? It's probably one of the things that parents obsess over, think about, consider, chew on, talk to their friends about more than many, many, many other things, right? Especially as the children get older and start to to look at going to school. Well, have you ever considered charter schools? They're an incredible alternative and give parents so much freedom. Today, we are going to talk to someone who is an expert in charter schools. I'm super happy to introduce to you Nina Reese. She's the President and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, which is the leading organization committed to advancing the charter school movement. She has over 20 years experience in Washington, D.C., most recently as the Senior Vice President of Strategic Initiatives for Knowledge Universe, which is a global education company. Prior to that, she was the Assistant Deputy Secretary for Innovation and Improvement at the U.S. Department of Education where she oversaw the administration of 28 grant proposals and programs and policies advancing school choice, charter schools, alternative routes for teacher certifications and school leadership. Prior to joining the Department of Education, she served as the Deputy Assistant for Domestic Policy to the Vice President at the White House. She's appeared on several news outlets, including CNN, MSNBC's Morning Joe, and PBS's NewsHour, and she has articles and opinions that have been published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. She is also a member of the Aspen Global Leadership Network. Please help me welcome Nina Reese to Teaching Your Toddler. Hello, this is Mary Jo Tinlin from the Teaching Your Toddler podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Nina Reese to talk to us. Uh, Nina, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about um, education, your background in education. Well, first of all, thank you so much for
1: having me. I just took my daughter to college, and it was just yesterday where I was looking at some photo albums, which is something you are not supposed to do after you drop off your kids to college. Just remembering how quickly time went by. Um, but anyway, so in terms of my background, other than being a mom, I run an advocacy organization that uh, supports the growth of public charter schools. Uh, And before that, I worked in the early childhood education space. I've worked in government, also in the capacity where I advocated for the expansion of choice and options. And uh, since 1995, I've been a great advocate of giving parents uh, more information about the quality of the schools that their kids are attending, as well as empowering them with the funding they need in order to make educated options. Uh, The National Alliance, however, is an National Advocacy Organization. We've been around for almost 20 years, and our sole goal is to expand access to greater public schools through charter schools. And there are currently almost 8,000 charter schools around the country serving a little over 3.7 million students. Uh, We have charter school laws in 46 states, uh, and it's one of those movements that certainly saw a surge in interest and enrollment during the pandemic, When families were actively searching for options that fit their students' needs. About 250,000 families enrolled their kids in charter schools during the pandemic, which is a number uh, that we often talk about. And just just so you know, the reason it was just 250,000 is because we only have charter schools in certain markets. So Mm -hmm. if we had more of them, uh, we're willing to bet that more families would have opted for charter schools just because they are more customized to fit the needs of their communities.
0: Absolutely. And just so um, the listeners understand, can you explain a little bit about what exactly makes a charter school? What And how are they different than like a normal, quote unquote, normal public school?
1: Charter schools are public schools. They were conceptualized in um, The first law passed in Minnesota in 1991 uh, with the goal of giving teachers and educators more autonomy to run their schools as they wish, uh, to come up with different ways of of teaching and educating students outside of the school district infrastructure and bureaucracy. Uh, So it is in some ways the best of what public education is always intended to be, uh, except that it... In most states, uh, it operates outside of the school district. So, whereas in a school district, or and your your average school is operated and run by a school board that oversees its day-to-day operations and what it teaches and how it functions. There's a superintendent who oversees school systems. We have about 15,000 school districts around the country. Charter schools can be part of a school district, but most of them sit outside of that district. And because of that, they're shielded from a lot of the politics that permeate our traditional public school system. Uh, But You know, again, they a lot of teachers have started charter schools, a lot of, um, you know, parents have started charter schools. So in communities where there has been an interest in doing something different and where there has been a law, we've seen some really interesting programs emerge. And most importantly, in inner city settings, we've seen um, a, a real... Uh, attempt at closing the achievement gap and success in closing cl- closing the achievement gap based on studies that have come out from different outlets most recently from
0: Stanford University. Hmm. The governing body of a charter school is slightly different too, right?
1: Yes. So they're operated by a board of their own. It's an independent board of individuals in the community. Uh, and they also are governed by an authorizer. That authorizer can be a school district. It can be the state education agency. It can be a nonprofit or a university. Again, it depends on your state law. Uh, and so that authorizer often gives you a contract mm-hmm. uh, that it's roughly say five years. After those five years, if you haven't met the terms of the contract, the authorizer can close you, and uh, one of the terms of closure can be around student achievement. If you haven't met certain metrics of student achievement, raising student achievement and whatnot, you can be closed. And that's really one of the key distinctions between traditional public schools and charter schools in that if it's not working, if it's not attracting enough families, it can't stay open. And if it's not meeting the terms of its contract, the authorizer can close it.
0: I remember when I lived in Colorado, there was a there was a charter school that closed. Um, they, they sort of did this like unschooling thing. They were mm. trying to do an unschooling kind of thing, but they had no achievements at all. Like they didn't grade anybody. And it just was, it kind of fell apart because like you said, it just it just sort of fizzled away. It was sad because it seemed like a great concept, but it just didn't quite work in practice. So um, you mentioned your background in early education a bit. So tell us a little bit about like the bridge and the importance of kind of like your your early childhood or your experience as a parent with early childhood. And then, you know, how, how do you sort of help transition your child into education next? And then what are the things that someone should try to think about as they're sort of trying to pick that school for their child? Well, as
1: I'm sure you've talked about this before, and I'm not saying anything that's news to your listeners, those first five years of life are so critical to a child's success. Uh, Your brain is developed in those first three years. Really, it starts with prenatal care, uh, how you talk to your child, how you take care of your child, what sort of care you provide to your child. And parents in most communities have a range of options and public funds follow the students to these options, uh, depending on the community that you're in. There's also been a lot of effort and discussion around boosting the quality of childcare through quality rating systems and different mechanisms to enhance the quality of the care that the child is receiving. But what's interesting about those first five years of life is that parents are actively making choices and they're very active in their child's education by either selecting a childcare provider of their choice by hiring people to take care of their kids at home and also their own engagement through reading and other mechanisms. And so um, unfortunately, once students start the K-12 system, you're often going to move into a district that has a school that goes from K through 12. And once your child starts kindergarten, your level of engagement in that school really does diminish after a while. You're mainly just going to the school for a fundraiser uh, or when, you know, at the beginning of the year to see what's going on in terms of academics or if something goes... Wrong, you're not yourself as engaged, unfortunately, as you should be. And so, one of the things that uh, I, as an advocate of, you know, more public school options in the K twelve system, have long um, uh, advocated for is this notion of continuing this the customization and uh, and and keeping parents engaged by offering them more options in the public school system and constantly reminding them uh, that ultimately this journey you know, that your child is going to change a lot. They're going to have different interests and needs that may start at a certain age. Uh, and and it's important for parents to have options. If the child is very interested in STEM, for instance, if there are more options to access schools focused on STEM, you know, we should make sure those things are available to them either within the school or outside the school or in an after-school setting. So, um, and I think, Certainly COVID opened the door to some of these discussions, and we are seeing more discussions around unbundling the way education is offered. Wealthy families do this all the time, but it's not quite the way it should be in our K-12 system. We still look at our schools in terms of let's send the child. They, they're going to take care of them from like eight to four or whatever, and then come home, do homework and go back. We're not thinking about what's happening in the classroom as much as uh, we we should, in my opinion.
0: And so how does a charter school offer something different than a public school in that realm? Well, again,
1: because there are schools of choice, um, Parents are actively deciding whether they want the school or not. I live in Washington, D.C., that has a very broad menu of options for families. There are schools that are focused on language immersion, schools that are focused on science and technology, schools that are more of a back to basic curriculum, schools for adult learners. Um, so, by making these options available, you're also opening the door for a family to make these choices at any, on any given day. If they decide, okay, I want to put my child in a Hebrew language immersion program, there's something available here. So one thing is just to make these options available for parents to pick and choose from. But the other is to, quite frankly, uh, you know, again, the online medium opens the door to so many other additional things you can learn on any given day in or outside the school. And so it's really important for public dollars to be available for families to be able to access these options. A lot of it is also open source and so um, but being able to you know differentiate between the high quality programs and those that are not is in my opinion one of the tricky parts about accessing open source content so uh, and in those instances parents themselves need to be engaged to see what to pull and how to supplement what what a child is learning uh, at school with additional content but it's a different way of thinking about your child and their education, whereas it used to be a static, okay, K-12, you're going to graduate and go to college. And so you, you're you active in the first five years, then you stop, you go to K-12, and then you start getting active again before you select the college. In this instance, what I'm trying to encourage is the idea of uh, having parents simply ask those questions at different points in time throughout the child's life in their K-12 journey.
0: Mm. Um, A couple more questions on that. So what you had mentioned different focuses for for schools and like a language program or something like that. I know the... The one that I tried to help start in Colorado, our focus was a classical education um, because there was nothing offered in the district that way. So it was a way for our parents to, to have that voice, like you said, to to give input and say this is the kind of education we want in this district, and will you let us have that? Um, unfortunately, the district wouldn't let wouldn't let that um come in because they 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 didn't particularly care for that um method of curriculum, but, um, what, uh, what's the difference between a magnet school and a charter school? That's a great question.
1: Uh, So magnet schools are governed by school districts, it's a different program that school districts manage, often targeted at certain student populations. Uh, So you can have an art centric magnet, you can have a a magnet that is um, specializing in gifted and talented students, and in some instances, they will have admission standards, uh, and, and their governance is still within the school district infrastructure. They get money from the federal government to support their growth. We also have some charter schools that are also magnet schools to make things quite confusing. (laughs) Um, But in general, they, they are governed by the school district. And as I said, they're specialized in certain things that the district wants to do.
0: So not quite as much autonomy potentially as a charter school. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um, and so you mentioned that it's there's 46 states. So uh, of the 46 states, I, and I, you know, my experience now is, is has been in two different states. Where in Colorado, lots of options, lots of charter schools around in the area, all over the state. The top, you know, five of the top 10 call our schools in high schools in in the state are charter schools um, because they just are able to tailor that that curriculum so well and attract incredible talent, which was great. My experience here in Kansas right now is that I haven't seen that many that many, but for a parent who lives in any of these states, how do they sort of find like resources or understand what their options are for uh, charter schools uh, where they live? Well,
1: you can go to our website at publiccharters.org, uh, and there is a tool for parents to search and see if there's a school within a five-mile radius or whatever the radius is. There are also um, uh, online sources like Niche and GreatSchools.net, uh, where you can again log in and see if there's a charter school near you. Mm-hmm. Um, and most state education agencies again list all the charter schools. You can go to the authorizer website. So again there are different ways of tracking them and also our website is one-stop shopping for that information.
0: Then if a a parent found out that there wasn't something in their area, would you also then be able to help them potentially start their own?
1: Well, yes. So, and I'm... that's a great question. I've often thought I would love to have a system where I could capture the names of parents who are seeking another type of public school, or potentially a charter school, so that we can activate them in becoming um, advocates for charter schools. So if there is no charter school in their community, they want to open a school, that's one approach is to call us and we can connect them to the right individuals. But another approach is to in those instances where the state law doesn't exist or that community is just not open to the concept, there is um, a lot at it that a parent can do uh, to advocate for the creation of charter schools. So if they're interested in becoming advocates, we have a lot of tools on our website at, at their disposal.
0: Well, can you give us a couple one or two
1: or three. Well, one of them is just to reach out to um, their legislator and ask them, either the mayor's office, there's councilman or member of Congress. Again, these are highly local issues, so I would start with the mayor's office or the superintendent's office. In those instances where the school district can authorize a charter school, that's a conversation to be had at that level. Uh, but most of the decision making around creating a charter school law are made at the state legislature. So reaching out to your state rep and state senator and your governor to ask these questions is the right place to start. Um, And uh, so again, it depends on whether the law exists. If it doesn't exist, we need parents to uh, reach out to us so we can give them the tools that they need to ask for these options. If the law exists, but for some reason, the district is not open to creating them. I, I live in Fairfax County. We happen to be a district that has not been open to creating charter schools. Uh, so in these places, we've really been encouraging families to reach out to the governor's office to improve the quality of the law. Um, so there's no one uh, toolkit that you can give because every state is in a different, uh, you know, phase of development. I mean, you live in Kansas and you told me your story about being in Colorado and Kansas being so different. Uh, but I would think the I would say the first thing to do is to reach out to your state Um, Legislative Office and talk to them about the importance of opening charter schools. And then the next phase, to the extent there is an opportunity and no one has seized it, it is to reach out to the authorizer and every state again has different types of authorizers. The authorizer is the first entry point to filing an application to open a charter school. Uh, And there again, we can, we have some resources, but we're not necessarily the group that can help you open a school. We can connect you to individuals in your states that can help you.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That And in our case in Colorado, when we were trying, we actually did end up going to the state school board and uh, we spoke there and had had an interesting um, exchange and it did go all the way up to the governor's office. So I had some, a little bit of experience with that. It's, it's, it can be intimidating, but if you have a good group um, that's supportive and you have, you know, when you believe in what you're trying to accomplish, then it, it, you know, It will work, especially for our kids, right? Like we'll do anything we can to get them the best education possible.
1: That's true. And it shouldn't be intimidating. These individuals were elected to office to represent you. And I'm willing to bet that nine times out of 10, they would rather talk to parents than to all the lobbyists and other interest groups that are knocking on their doors. So parents (laughs) should get comfortable in this advocacy role and, uh, realize the power that they have in, in mm-hmm. changing the course of education for their children.
0: Is there anything else that you can talk about along that line, sort of like parental rights or things like that, that maybe there, maybe some parents wouldn't understand that the rights they have, is there anything around that?
1: Well, if you have a child with disabilities, the child does have certain rights and, um, you know, so that in terms of rights, the, that is the class that has the most number of rights and districts are aware of that. So mm-hmm. if you are not getting what you need, the district by law has to provide it or place you in a setting that can provide that um, the the courses the that are held mm-hmm. and the support that they need. Uh, but other than that, there is really no right. I think it's more of um, the concept of engaging in school board elections to elect individuals who are like-minded uh, and advocating for more transparency and information so that you know what's being taught in your schools, who is uh, making decisions, making sure that you have a voice and that you, and that they're taking your voice seriously. But again, the reason I'm an advocate of charter schools is these political processes do require a lot of attention and your average parent doesn't have the time to go sit through uh, school board hearings or to even you know, again, we should all be voting as much as we can and pay attention to those school board races. But those races don't take place at the same time as other races. So you have to really know what you're doing in order to have an impact. And so um, by being an advocate for public school choice and charter schools in particular, you're taking the politics out of the equation. And then the unit that you're ultimately holding accountable is going to be your school and your school alone. And in my opinion, that is you know, a better value proposition for your child, you'll be able to influence what's happening in that school, what's being taught, without having to constantly be in the middle of all the political discussions that happen in a school board
0: context. I have one last question for you, and it's maybe a little bit of a loaded question. But what do you think people's challenges are? Oftentimes, this is a, a- a political issue, like you just said, and that oftentimes there are people that don't support school choice. And what do you think is going on there?
1: Well, those individuals, nine times out of 10 are individuals who have either made a choice already for their kids or have themselves benefited from choice by moving into a district that's had, that had that had good quality schools. Rarely do you see an individual who sent their child to a poor performing school simply to keep the child and and that system alive. So uh, that's you know the the first thing just to point out is those who oppose choice uh, tend to not necessarily be individuals who are you know in the same schools that our parents are seeking to remove their children from. Um, I think some of the arguments are centered around um, the common school ideal and the, the 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 what public schools were meant to be, which is a place where people come together from. Different socioeconomic backgrounds and different races and whatnot in order to learn the basics, uh, math, reading, history and also civics and kind of come together and have the school be a melting pot of sorts that educates you uh, and prepares you for life. But what's happening, unfortunately, in a lot of our public schools is that's not happening. People are self-selecting into settings uh, that look more like them. So this, you know, concept of using schools in order to, uh, you know, bring, you know, different racial backgrounds and economic backgrounds together is really not proven because, again, you go to any realtor and they'll tell you how people are making choices about where to live and how much money they're putting into their homes in order to be in a particular district. So, um, you know, I, I think the root causes of it, in some instances, may be, you know, valid ones in a sense that you want your school to be a great school that attracts people from all walks of life. But I don't think anyone should be forced to attend a school that's not meeting their child's needs. And if you're low income, you certainly shouldn't be forced to send your child to that school simply because you're not in the right zip code. Um, So to me, this is, this is not, There's no rational argument to be made to force anyone to send a child to a school that hasn't consistently graduated students, where you know the achievement gap is persistent, or where you yourself have to put a lot of sweat equity in order to make sure that the teachers um, are serving your, your students' needs.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. I 100% agree. I don't think that you should be limited by where you, your zip code is, for sure, for a good education, for a, a higher quality education than what you can possibly achieve So, or or attain, I should say. Well, thank you, Nina, so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. I know you said your website before, but let's say it again. And I will, of course, um, any kind of links that we want to add to the show notes, we'll make sure that those are there too.
1: Yes, it's uh, publiccharters.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Charter Alliance, at Charter Alliance, or you can follow me on Twitter at Nina
0: Charters. Oh, perfect. Okay, great. Well, we will make sure that those are linked so that people can find you. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this is an incredible topic. A lot of parents, especially if they have really young kids, they don't know what they don't know. So I I appreciate you coming on and helping people understand a little bit better. (laughs)
1: Thank you so much. And we are also encouraging a lot of our charter schools to build alliances with early childhood education providers in those places where there is access to public school pre-K programs. A lot of charter schools have created pre-K programs. And, and a lot of charter schools also have relationships with their Head Start providers and other um, child care providers, since those are the feeders to those schools. So I Absolutely. forgot to mention that.
0: Oh, good. No, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. That's, that's great for this audience. Thank you. Thank you again Thank you. so much. All right. Bye-bye. This has been the Teaching Your Toddler podcast with Mary Jo Tinlin. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you'll find us on our website at teachingyourtoddler.com, as well as on Facebook at Teaching Your Toddler, on Instagram, and on Twitter at Teaching Toddler. So join us again, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you so much.